Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. Podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. John, why don't you start us off and tell us what your article is? Well, Eric, it is Clear Creek, Utah. Mm. But this article is about the creek, not the community. So, literally, all it says is that it's a creek that goes to a river and it's close to a highway. <laughs> That's what I got, Eric. What about you? Uh, well, I have merger doctrine, which what? is a trust law, and it is two sentences long. Mm-hmm. So. Yum. Oh, well, you know what? Mine has a Clear Creek, which has a link that says that it's also the name of a ghost town in the area. All right. Let's check it out. All right. <laughs> Okay, so Clear Creek. Clear Creek, Utah. Utah. Alright, so. Whoa. So, uh. The total population is four? Yeah, it's one of those. We literally <laughs> started out someplace and then took a link to the dreaded opening article where there's the population <laughs> of nobody in town. The de- I love how the population density is larger than the population itself. <laughs> I don't know how that works. <laughs> I can only assume that those four people live in the same square mile. <laughs> I don't know how it this does happened. Look like it. The total land area is 0.2 square miles. So that might have something to do with it. Yeah. So there's four people and it's... A population density of 20 people per square mile. Which makes <laughs> sense, but uh, yeah. it seems, seems awfully small. Wow, wow, it's it's not a ghost town. It's practically a ghost town now. I don't know why they said it's a ghost town in the same area, because it's pretty much a ghost town. I mean, you, re- you read about this. Okay, the history of this thing is... Clear Creek was founded in 1870s as a logging camp. It supplied lumber to the nearby town of Winter Quarters. It's <laughs> a weird name for a town. About 20 years after that, Clear Creek was actually founded. Uh, coal was discovered beneath the town and a mine developed. But as is the case with most uh, mining towns, there is a steep decline in population somewhere. But bear <laughs> with us, we're not there yet. In 1898, the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad built a spur line from Schofield to the mine at Clear Creek. Two years later, the Utah Fuel Company built 25 homes, a hotel, a store, a hospital, a schoolhouse, a workshop, and a water plant in the town. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot. For only four people. (laughs) Yep. Sure is. (laughs) 
Seems like a bad investment, really. Like that that company was like real generous to those four folks. Uh, from 1910 to 1920, 2,000 tons of coal was being mined per day at Clear Creek, Whoa. and Clear Creek had some 600 people in its mm. confines. Now that is a pretty densely populated 0 .20 square miles. Yes, yes it is. But in 1930, the need for coal began to decrease. And by 1955, mm. the mine had cut production and the town's population had decreased to 150. Yeah. And according to the 2010 census, there were four people there. <laughs> that reminds me of that one... Did we talk about the article where there was just one person living in the town yep. still and she refused yeah. to <laughs> She refused to leave. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how these things happen, and I don't know why. I mean, okay, so what they did with this town is they had, okay, they, the coal company built came in, they built all this stuff. They had the hotel, they had the water plant, they had all the workings of a town, right? So what do you do when a town is completely abandoned, but it has all the workings of a town? Why do you make it a recreation and camp area for various schools and programs? There's cabins, there's a restroom, and a shower area. And a recreation area. And an eating area. And, 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 and. This article uses and a lot. It's not me. It's not me. There's an and, like, every time I said and. Except for the part where I was just going and over and over again. Those weren't there. I can make them in there real quick. You won't see them. They'll be edited true, by the time yeah. you hear this. But. Cool. Yeah, that's all they have to say about that. That really is. That really is all there is to say about Clear Creek, Utah. Now, do we want to just jump over to um, Ghost Towns? Yeah. I think that's why we came here, really. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> like, it wasn't for the coal. It wasn't even for the trains this time. It was just to see Ghost Town. Yeah. So, yeah, it's Ghost Town is just an abandoned village town or city that still has all the buildings and everything up. And it's usually just because of um, declining economic activity and, you know, all sorts of like, disasters and any such thing it will contribute to a town being abandoned save for four people or one person which is essentially being abandoned anyway yeah. if you, you know you've only you've had a town that's been so many people and down to one I mean <laughs> come on just admit it <laughs> <laughs> oh okay so there are some ghost towns that have uh, preserved period specific architecture and became tourist attractions and the examples are Banac, Montana, which I've not heard of. Calico, California, also not heard of. Centralia, Pennsylvania, which I have heard of. And Oakman, Arizona, in the United States. And then in Canada, there is Barkerville, British Columbia. There's Krakow in Italy. And Elizabeth Bay and Coleman Scop in Namibia. And Pripyat in Ukraine. Danish Kadi in India. 
And yeah, that's it. There's also a ghost town that is an incumbent du jour capital, Plymouth, in Montserrat. Hmm. Now, I don't know how that works. <laughs> Because it is a capital city and it's also a ghost town. Mm. What the heck's a Montserrat? I guess is really the question. <laughs> How can you be a country, have a capital city, and have the capital city be a ghost town? What? Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you figure somebody has to live there. It's for it to be a country in the first place, right? Yeah. And. If you're a country, you generally have some sort of government or yeah. leaders, and I'm not 100% sure of this, but I'm pretty sure that government people live in the capital. I mean, most of the that's time. that's where the capital is. Unless... Essentially, even if they don't live where the capital is wherever they live becomes the new capital. Right. You know? It just doesn't make sense to me, though. Like, why would they have a town? Like, is it for tax reasons or something? <laughs> They're the government, though, so you wouldn't think they'd have anybody else to pay. Like, yeah. they make the money. Hmm. They get the taxes. What's the deal with Montserrat? Should we go, or should we continue with Ghost Towns and see if there's anything else interesting here first? I don't know. I feel like people know about Ghost Towns. Maybe we could see if there's any good pictures, but, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in checking out more with Montserrat. All right. Yeah, there's nothing else in this article. You know what a Ghost Town is. You've seen this. Yeah. Stuff. There's plenty of links there that are interesting to follow. Believe me, I've been on this article in my free time before. <laughs> Ghost Towns, can't read it highly enough, but... This Montserrat thing's weird, man. We gotta go. Yeah. Alright, let's check it out. Montserrat. Okay, so to start off, maybe it isn't its own country. It does kind of have a British uh, flag uh, up in the corner of its flag. Huh. And the anthem is, uh, God Save the Queen. <laughs> Some, I guess they mean that queen. Well, the queen. Okay, it is a Caribbean island, specifically in the Leeward Islands, which is a part of the chain known as the Lesser Antilles in the British West Indies. Uh, okay, so it is a British overseas territory. Okay. Makes a little more sense. Mm -hmm. But, still, why would Britain, of all things, let one of their territories have a ghost town camp? <laughs> that doesn't seem yeah. like something very British. Like that, it's one thing to give your give a territory or a country that you own freedom. <laughs> it's another thing to be like, yeah, you can be free, but this town that is your uh, capital can't have any people in it. <laughs> that's a, that seems a little like cruel and unusual punishment. I don't think that's what happened. <laughs> so, what did happen? Uh, let's see. Okay, so Montserrat is ten miles long and seven miles wide. With 25 miles of coastline. So it's not huge, it's but it's also... small, yeah. Yeah, not the smallest island. Ten miles across is... Eh, it's a good spit of land. It actually resembles coastal Ireland. Weird. <laughs> Given its location, that's really strange. Yeah. Maybe all coasts just kind of look like uh, similar. Oh, here we I go. I know why things happen, but I still don't know why they didn't move the capital. In 1995, a volcano, which was had been dormant, became active, 
and eruptions destroyed the Georgian capital, Georgian era capital city of Plymouth. Oh. So their capital was destroyed by a volcano. Okay. But wouldn't they have just moved the capital to some other place? I don't know. I mean, it seems like they would need to do something. Yeah. So what they have done, it looks like, is a new town port is being developed at Little Bay hmm. on the northwest coast of the island so as to not be in the way of the volcano should it, you uh, know, yeah. get all volcano-y on them again. Yeah, it does look like maybe it's been a long process of stuff because between 1995 and 2000, two-thirds of the entire island's population was forced to flee. Um, they mostly just went to Great Britain. And, uh, yeah. So the uh, volcano ac- volcanic activity still ha- was doing stuff until... 2010 at least so yeah maybe it was just too uh, crazy for you know time and they were like well this volcano is still doing stuff so it's kind of hard to actually get anything done yeah kind of kind of a weird situation though uh it's one of those it's not quite pompeii-ish but Mm -hmm. i mean if you look at the plymouth pictures it's pretty uh pretty ashen now. <laughs> it's very, very gray. Yeah. It looks like it was a pretty decent city at one point. There's a lot of houses and stuff going on down here. Mm. But, uh, yeah, pretty pretty unlivable as it stands. Um, it says that they did move the uh, capital for all intents and purposes to a place called Braids. Or Brady's, not really sure. Brady's. <laughs> and Brady's was going to be the uh, capital of it for now until they finish up with this little bay area. Yeah, this island was originally dis. Well, I don't know about discovered, but it was named in nineteen in fourteen ninety three by Christopher Columbus, and he called the island Santa Maria de Montserrat after the Virgin of Montserrat in the Monastery of Montserrat near Barcelona in Spain. So, he named it Montserrat after Montserrat. Makes sense to me. <laughs> so I wonder where the original Montserrat was. Is, I don't know. They didn't keep track of it, I guess. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, there is a link to Monastery of Montserrat, but... It must be it. I don't know. Huh. So in November 1493, he passed Montserrat in his second voyage after being told that the island was unoccupied due to raids by the Caribs, hmm. which I guess is the name for like native Caribbeans. Yeah, must be. I've never heard. That. I've never heard that term. <laughs> never heard as referred to Caribs. You know, pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Yeah, the pirates themselves would be Caribs. They would be. Those would be the ones. Johnny Depp just learned by imitation. They, <laughs> the pirates were there the whole time. They're the natives. Yeah. So now he he's Spanish, Christopher Columbus, right? Right. So 
he's Spanish, but it came under English control in 1632. Yeah, uh, apparently it was still unoccupied until then. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, an anti-Catholic violence in Nevis forced a group of Irish transported from Ireland as indentured service servants to settle in Montserrat. <laughs> and they were going to go someplace else to serve, but then they ended up having to go there because there were too many people who were against Catholics. So they were like, all right, well, detour. <laughs> ended up in Montserrat. A neo-feudal colony then developed amongst the quote-unquote red legs. Although a better source is needed. But there is a source. <laughs> Nine. There is a source, but, you know, it might not be trustworthy. No. But it is kind of interesting that Ireland had a neo-feudal colony. Yeah. You don't really think of Ireland as an empire. Like, they're not going yeah. out, like, create, conquering countries and stuff. But they found Montserrat. They took that. <laughs> And as per the times, the colonists began to import African slaves for labor. As was common to most of the Caribbean islands again at the time. Yep. And that would also be around the time that the um, United States of America was being, you know, settled and everything. And they were also engaging in the slave import trade. So it was just kind of a big market in that area of the world at the time, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, they also developed an economy based around sugar, rum, arrowroot, and sea island cotton. Well, cultivated. The Caribbeans are known for their rum, are they not? That's true. That is very true. Didn't really occur to me until you said that. <laughs> I don't know how it did, but yeah. They must be able to make some good stuff down there. <laughs> well, it's made from molasses, isn't it? You know, I really don't know. So I think that's what it's made. Yeah, yeah, it is. It rum is made from molasses. Okay. So if they have good uh, sugar production down there, that really makes sees. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Stands to reason. Hmm. Man, it says that by the late 1700s, numerous plantations had been developed on the island. I don't know. I feel like this island isn't that big. It could only allow for as, like, numerous is the maximum amount <laughs> of, of, like, you couldn't have a lot. Numerous yeah. is the most plantation, the entire like island's plantation. plantations. Yeah, like the entire island's plantation at this point. What? Yeah, 39 square miles is not very big at all. No, no, that's no, like, no. That's literally, like, the size of a large town. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, let me confirm this, hang on. <laughs> Bear with us one moment. Well, the uh, capital of Pennsylvania, for example, is 12 square miles. It's Harrisburg, PA. It's 12 <laughs> square miles. Now, I don't know if you've been to That's Harrisburg, but Harrisburg proper, not that big. Yeah. Three of those <laughs> equals this island. Not a lot of room for farming. Yeah. You know? Hmm. Yeah, that's... <laughs> So they really had to cram those in there, like to have numerous plantations, like yeah, because plantations are like extra big. Yeah, um, they're farming. In, they're industrial-sized agricultural operations. Yeah, they're huge. They're enormous. Maybe they just had like three or four that 
counts as numerous. It's numerous enough. It has to be numerous enough to uh, account for the fact that there were going to be uh, Irish people, in addition to the slaves, uh, ascertained the slave trade, uh, that were also transported to the island to work as indentured servants. And there were also Irish that were sent there as exiled prisoners. Some were uh, exiled during the English Cromwellian conquest of Ireland. <laughs> Which I guess uh, Cromwell conquested Ireland or decreed so. that they should have. Probably did for a little bit, and then they, you know, in Irish fashion, rebelled. And the population is 4,900 people as of 2012. And the density is 114 people per square mile. It's not bad for an island that's half unoccupied due to uh, being in the exclusion zone caused by a volcano. You would think that fewer people would live there given that it's a giant active volcanic island. (laughs) So, interesting thing, under the subheading of Economy of Montserrat, it says that from 1979 to 1989, Montserrat was home to a branch of George Martin's Air <laughs> Studios, making the island popular with musicians who often went there to record and take advantage of the island's climate and beautiful surroundings. Huh. The studio unfortunately closed not as a result of the volcano, but as a result of Hurricane Hugo. Yeah, it sounds like... Hurricane Hugo was pretty devastating to it, and it didn't help that the volcano also started doing stuff soon after. Yeah. Between those two things, it seems like uh, the economy is pretty much gone. It's shut off. There's just people on this island, (laughs) and nothing's happening with it. Yeah, now I guess it's essentially just a tourist attraction now, for the most part. British Pompeii. Hmm. It's um, the island is home of the critically endangered giant ditch frog, lo- known locally as the mountain chicken. <laughs> hmm, that's quite a must be quite a big <laughs> frog then. Yeah, it's found only in Montserrat and Dominica. Really, that's it. That's it. It is critically endangered, but you can see why. It shows some pretty bad locations <laughs> to set up. Yeah, it's um, the species has undergone catastrophic declines due to amphibian disease uh, called Kai. Why? Uh, Kaiju. Kai. Kaitridiami Kaitridiomycosis. Kaitridiomycosis. There we go. There we go. (laughs) I think as long as one of us can pronounce something, I'm just gonna go through it. I just barrel right through that thing, (laughs) and I got to the other side. Yeah, with words like that, you gotta just have no fear. Just say say it. Just sit there and and stare it, stare it down. Because if you if you start trying to break it down, it's like. Nah, because by the time you break down like three of it, you'll be like, well, now I have to go back to the beginning (laughs) to figure out where I was. It's like climbing a rock face with no footing. But yeah, and not only is it from the amphibian disease, but also the, you guessed it, volcanic eruption in 1997. 
So they've been working to try to conserve this frog, but yeah. Really hard to do, given <laughs> the situation. Yes. Not very plausible. But yeah, this place is also known for its coral reefs and the caves along the shore, which house many bats, and those bats are under protection. Nothing like protected bats. <laughs> yeah, they actually have some uh, sports here. For such a small island, they have cricket, surfing, football, a.k.a. soccer, athletics, which is, I don't know. <laughs> the Commonwealth Games what they say they hold that in. I don't know what that means. Yeah, and then basketball. So, I don't know. I feel like I mean, they'd have to have, like, a stadium for each of those, right? Of sorts. I don't imagine it to be anything actually grandiose or anything yeah. like that. Okay, so... There is a notable Monsterations section. And looking over the names, I do not recognize any of them. Probably because most of them are cricket players or... Uh, soccer players. You almost said football. I did almost. It was almost, <laughs> almost the the sport that people would be like, "Oh man, Suck. I know football." Oh, <laughs> not that football. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. American podcast problems. <laughs> when we say football, we can't mean football. <laughs> there is all. There is a guy named Jim Allen, though, which is funny because. It's one letter away from Tim Allen. And this island is, at the very least, a one-hit wonder. The guy who named, who made the song... Because it's hot, hot, hot. That guy? His name is Alphonsus Aero Cassell, and he is a Montserratian. <laughs> Well, at least they've got that. They do have hot, 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 which is ironic <laughs> because of the volcano thing. I don't yeah. know when hot, hot, hot came out. Well, As it turns out, it's 1982, so it was just kind of uh, a coincidence <laughs> that there was a volcano that was going to destroy his homeland in the near future. Yep. Yeah. Well, the volcano was always there. It just didn't do anything for a while. It was never hot, hot, hot mm. while he was there. But alas, we are out of article. Yeah. And though there are other things, there's um, I mean this this article is a real treasure trove of links, though. I it will is. be honest. <laughs> yeah. You can even get the Jethro Tull from this article. Not bad. You can get to natural disasters, you can get to endangered species. I mean, for being a little island with mostly nobody there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could go to um, neo-feudalism. Red legs. I want to know what red legs is. Like, that was the one that, like, mm -hmm. or caribs. Either one, yeah, really. Yeah, caribs, too. Because, I mean, like, as far as them being a native people go... <laughs> I'm not really too able to say I know anything about them, yeah. how they got there. Because, I mean, like, island people don't just happen. 
like they came from somewhere, right? Mm. Like at some point. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they're the Caribbean islands are very isolated from any continent. I don't really see there being any land bridges. They're mostly volcanic islands, so yeah. somebody had to be on a boat. <laughs> the boat had to go way off course, and they panicked and they just kept rowing and they ended up <laughs> in the Caribbean islands. Like that's what pretty close to what had to have happened. Hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm torn between caribs and red legs. I feel like red legs is just gonna be some dumb, uh, you know, slang term for the Irish. There's already plenty for. Like, oh, uh, maybe maybe red legs is like a nickname for like Irish people or something. Yeah, but I don't know. Let's add a little flavor. To our, to our, you know, podcast. Let's go for some caribs. All right. See what Royal Caribbean's all about. <laughs> caribs. Caribous. All right. Redirects us to Island Caribs. The Island Caribs, also known as the Kalanago, or simply Caribs. I don't know how Caribs is a simplification of Kalanago, but <laughs> whatever language you do, you are an indigenous people of the Lesser Antilles in the Caribbean. They may have descended from the mainland Caribs, the Kalina, of South America, Mm. but they spoke an unrelated language known as Island Carib. (laughs) So it, it says at the time of the Spanish contact, the Caribs were one of the dominant groups in the Caribbean, which owes its name to them. They lived throughout the Windward Islands, Dominica, and possibly the Southern Leeward Islands. So there was more than one group in the... Yeah, I guess. I don't know really who, but it looks like there was a previous group of people uh, known as the Igniri. And the island caribs ultimately conquered their homeland from those people. Uh, However, linguistic and archaeological evidence disputes the notion of a mass emigration and conquest. Uh, The island Carib language appears not to have been Caribbean, but yeah, thank you. Again, with the charging through. Like, you can't can't be intimidated by it. You just gotta do it. Yeah, Arawakan. Uh, like that of their neighbors, the Taino. Tino? Now, Taino I can get into. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, got one. Irving Rouse and others suggested a smaller group of mainland Caribs conquered the islands without displacing their inhabitants, eventually adopting the local language but retaining their traditions of a South American origin. So there's really very little conclusive evidence as to who or what these people are. <laughs> Caribs just sounds like some kind of like vegetable or something. Doesn't it? It sounds like carrots, but with an impediment. <laughs> Caribs. Let's let's chop up some carobs <laughs> for our salad. Oh, that probably doesn't sound right. Mm. Uh, hmm. No, let's not do that. <laughs> So, yeah, according to carbon dating, they are thought to have settled in South Am- in the Caribbean islands from South America in about 1200 A.D. So really not that long before Columbus even showed up. Yeah. Like, they were there for about 
a few generations. And then Columbus is like, yo. <laughs> Says that the uh, Caribs displaced Maypurian speaking Tainos by warfare, extermination, and assimilation. Oh, so we're going with this theory now. Okay, article. <laughs> you told me you didn't know, and now you're just running with it. Okay, whatever. Uh, the Taino had settled the island chains earlier in history, migrating from the mainland. So, like I said, nobody was there initially. Somebody came from some continent somewhere, <laughs> and they went there. Carib Islanders traded with the eastern Taino of the Caribbean Islands. And the Caribs produced the silver products which Ponce de Leon found in Taino communities. Hmm. None of the insular uh, Amerindians mined for gold, but obtained it by trade from the mainland. They were skilled boat sailors and boat builders and sailors. So that's interesting. I mean, I guess they'd have to be if they got to the island from somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, that is the only way you're going to get there from the mainland, and it is not close. Hmm. Oh, wow. They, it says they appeared to have owned, owed their dominance in the Caribbean basin to their mastery of warfare. <laughs> so, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, fortunately, when the Europeans showed up, they had an advantage. Biological warfare, <laughs> which hadn't been invented yet and unintentionally... <laughs> It's totally what happened to these folks. Uh, the Caribs were displaced by the Europeans with a great loss of life. Most fatalities resulted from Eurasian infectious diseases such as smallpox, to which they had no natural immunity, as well as warfare. So, okay, warfare maybe <laughs> did play a so, little bit of a yeah. factor, but they we were get, fighting a bunch of sick people. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Easy fight. Easy fight. I feel like this is where that whole um, smallpox killing the native... American or whatever thing came from because I've, I've heard that like that's m not actually true about the um, when like they came over to America like North America you mean? North America yeah, yeah. like what like the most of the Indian population or Native American population had died out before we actually even arrived yeah in something North else America. happened they were huge, like, and that's one thing that's kind of cool. There are huge, uh, like, burial mounds mm. all over the place uh, in numerous parts of, like, West Virginia and Ohio. Mm. And they're all from Native Americans because there was a giant, there were giant cities of yeah. Native Americans, and they all died out before we got to those areas. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if maybe some people from the Caribbean islands maybe made it to the mainland yeah, and be. somehow through trading, diseases spread all the way up through. Hmm. But, yeah, it definitely doesn't seem as likely. Yeah. Like, it seems like, you know, primarily these would be the people that would have died by way of infectious disease. Mm. It says that small populations did survive of the uh, Caribs, namely in Carib territory in northeast Dominica. Hmm. There were two There was a couple kinds of caribs. There were black caribs, known as uh, Garifuna. Later, uh, they were from Saint Vincent, and Saint Vincent also has some yellow caribs too. Uh, but it anyway, really does sound like vegetables here. Yeah. <laughs> now we're talking about different colors. Like, uh, wow. Uh, guess that's why America's just more of like it's not really a melting pot, man. It's a salad bowl. If <laughs> you think a, about it's it, it's a nice stew. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. 
Anyway, the black Caribs, they were descended from a group of enslaved Africans who were marooned from shipwrecks of slave ships, as well as slaves who had escaped there. And they intermarried with the Carib and formed the last native culture to resist the British. And everybody was resisting the British. Yeah. They had a lot going on back then. Everybody's revolting, and they're just like, oh, okay, listen. Everybody just stop. We'll stay back here. Just, just gradually, <laughs> we'll just gradually, you know, you know, back our way out of this whole situation. <laughs> like, like British, like it seems like the British Empire largely like reach its hands out across the world, barge <laughs> through like twenty different doors at once, and then immediately just started going, oh no, oh no, 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 oh no, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean. I'm so. I do apologize. I do apologize. I'm so sorry. Just allow me. Just permit me to. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to disturb. I'm out of here. Like, it just like was an immediate like tuck tail. And by immediate, I mean over the course of 200 to 300 years. <laughs> right. So because of Dominica's rugged area, Caribs were able to hide from European forces. And as such, they were so good at hiding, they ended up having some people who did survive. Uh... Britain ending, ended up giving some territory to the Caribs in 1903. Of course, by that point, there were only 3,000 of them remaining. They do elect their own chief, and in July 2003, Caribs observed 100 years of territory. In July 2014, Charles Williams was elected as Carib chief. And he succeeded Chief Garnett Joseph. It is said that they are the only remaining full-blood native Carib people, although some have intermarried with the non-Carib Dominican population. Hmm. Elsa says the last known speakers of the island Carib died in in the 1920s, and the language is extinct. We know a little bit about extinct languages. Talked about languages the one time. Yeah. Yeah, they, there's some pretty cool ones that have kind of died out over the years. Some places are actually trying to bring bring them back, yeah. too. Like, some places, just for heritage's sake, are trying to figure out what people meant and trying to uh, reinstate them and breathe some life back into them. Hmm. Nope, there's UNESCO again. It says that in Garifuna culture, there is a, another dance called Dugu. This dance is a ritual done for a death in the family, to pay their respect to their loved ones. In 2001, Garifuna music was proclaimed one of the masterpieces of the oral and intangible heritage of humanity by UNESCO. <laughs> coming back into coming back into our lives for the second time tonight, though you didn't hear about the first time, <laughs> believe us, is the, the UNESCO's coming up. In the future. Yeah, you'll hear that sometime. Sometime in probably not this year or next year, but <laughs> there's something on the horizon. Yes. Something big from the Wikipedia Chronicles. <laughs> coming soon to a ear near your head. And a finger very quick. You're gonna need to click a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay, teaser over. <laughs> well on too much. It's a lot of strands in old Duder's head here to keep straight. Yep, yep. Speaking of keeping keeping hair straight, scroll down a little bit. Under the subheading of cannibalism. Wow, <laughs> that, that guy has a lot of hairs to keep straight. <laughs> also, the subheading is cannibalism. Yeah. 
It actually is uh, from the Caribs, as it would turn out. Cannibalism. Okay. The Carib word Caribna meant person. It became the origin of the English cannibal. <laughs> Although among the Carib, it was apparently associated with rituals related to the eating of war enemies. <laughs> Some Europeans believe the Carib practiced general cannibalism. Okay. But there are no uh, substantiated claims of this, and there's no evidence suggesting that Native Caribbean people practiced any form of cannibalism. So why is it a theory? <laughs> uh, well, claims are based on European misconceptions. Uh, historical anthropologist Nicola Foote asserts that there is no firm, no firm evidence that cannibalism ever existed. Um, it had something to do probably with the fact that the Calanego had a tradition of keeping bones in their houses of their ancestors and stuff, but they weren't like trophies. They were there because they had people who they knew who had died, like family members and stuff. They weren't like, hey, I ate this dude. Be afraid <laughs> of me. No, 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 no. They were, they were ancestors. They were family. Like, they didn't bury them. They just kept them around mm. in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so... Italian explorer Giovanni de Verrazzano. Um, I recognize the name. I can't remember what he did. Uh, he was killed and said to have been eaten by Carib natives on Guadalupe, the French West Indies in 1528 during his third voyage to North America after exploring Florida, the Bahamas, and the Lesser Antilles. So, it sounds like cannibalism was a thing. I, I guess, was it only the um, general cannibalism that was not yeah, substantiated? Okay. I think just... The war cannibalism was... Probably, probably a real thing yeah. because like it seems like Columbus and his folks definitely witnessed it yeah and they were like what's <laughs> going on here hey you can't why are you why are you eating they probably That's didn't not... understand that those people were from different tribes mm. so I mean I can understand why Columbus and his people were probably seeing this firsthand and just freaking <laughs> the freaking out yeah they're just freaking out and I uh, I think uh, it wouldn't have been abundantly clear to them that it wasn't general cannibalism mm. But it probably wasn't, because why would you eat somebody you liked? <laughs> you're not, not going to like them that much. Yeah. If you like them, you want to keep them alive. <laughs> and even primitive people, I think, would understand that pretty darn well. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Um, to this day, the, Col the Kalanago people fight against what they regard as a misconception about their ancestors. The film... Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, was criticized by the National Garifuna Council for portraying the Carib people as cannibals. And yet, at the end of the paragraph, at the end of the subheading, I should say, another author comes forward, this guy named Basil A. Reed, concluding yet again that there's no evidence, either archaeological or from observations that by Europeans, that conclusively proves that island Caribs ever consumed human flesh. Ever. <laughs> at all. Period. Not ritually, not for war purposes, not for sacrifices. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a good possibility that a bunch of Europeans got in a boat and decided to come back and be incredibly racist <laughs> to what they just saw. 
it stands to logic now. I mean, we're in a modern world where we can understand things and in each other way better than we've ever been able to, and racism is still around, so why don't you think it, they would have said the same thing then? True. Like, honestly, that makes more sense. Okay, well, where do we go from here? There's a couple of cool links. There's the uh, Kalanago Genocide of 1626. <laughs> you can always go to Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest. Hmm to learn about what other groups were insulted <laughs> by that movie. Quite a few explorers on here. There are. Well, we know a lot about that Christopher Columbus guy. Hmm. We know everything about him except how the hell did he end up with such an English-sounding name when he <laughs> is from Spain by way of Italy. Right, yeah. But beyond that, we know a lot about that guy. So why don't we check out that... Uh, Italian explorer you mentioned earlier. Giovanni de Verrazzano. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, let's go there. All right, yeah. All right. So, our man Giovanni. Who sometimes has his name spelled wrong. <laughs> we missed one of the Z's. We don't usually see two Z's together. That's why people don't use them <laughs> together. It doesn't seem right. Yeah. Usually you only need one. Two Z's is excessive, but I guess for this guy, we'll make an exception. Okay, so he was an Italian explorer of North America. He was uh, alive from 1485 until 1528, where he was Whoa. killed by natives. Man, he was only 37? No, 30, 43. Yeah, so not That's like... That's not very old at all. No, not, not quite. He is an explorer of North America in service of the King of France, which you would not discern from his name. <laughs> that is not no. what you would think. So he's an Italian guy in service of the King of France. Yes. Strange. A little bit. He's renowned as the first European since the Norse expeditions to North America around 1000 AD to explore the Atlantic coast of North America between Florida and New Brunswick, including New York Bay, Narra Narragansett Bay in 1524, um, the bridge over the opening of New York Harbor and a vessel of the Italian Navy, a destroyer of the navigatory class, are among his numerous eponymous honors. So he got to see a lot of... The Atlantic coast. Yeah. That's impressive. Seeing everything from like New York down to Florida. I think that's a that's a lot of space he covered. Yeah. And then also go through the Caribbeans too. So even though he had a detailed account of his travels to North America, very little is actually known about his personal life. Maybe he didn't have much of one. Maybe he spent all of his time exploring. Could be. Probably. He didn't have that much time on Earth. <laughs> That's true. And he had to use a lot of it to get from France to Narragansett <laughs> Bay to New York Bay down to Cape Fear and back. And yes, he did go to Cape Fear. <laughs> kind of weird, though. So, uh, after a short stay near Cape Fear, which, mind you, is in modern North Carolina... Uh, in a letter to Francis I, Verrazano wrote that he was convinced the sound of Cape Fear in North Carolina 
was the beginning of the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> from which an access could be gained to China. Wow. This report caused one of many errors in the depiction of North America in contemporary <laughs> maps. The continent would not be fully mapped out for hundreds of years. <laughs> Pretty egregious error on his part. Yeah. I feel like a lot of explorers at that time weren't too um, keen from a cartographical yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they may have had the gumption to be, you know, travelers and explorers, but... They kind of miffed things up a little bit here and yeah. there. Yeah, I would say that's a pretty generous uh, statement as to what they did, yes. <laughs> so it looks like he was really hell-bent on finding this passage to the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I guess most yeah. explorers at that time were because they heard all this good stuff mm. about, uh, you know, st- st- like silks and goods that came from China, from India. Yeah. And, you I know, think they wanted... just try to maybe sail around like... Africa or something. Right. Like, that might have actually been shorter than discovering a whole other continent they didn't know <laughs> about. Um, but uh, since he was determined to find this, he not only went on his first voyage to modern Maine, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, yada, 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 uh, but he also went to his third voyage, eventually to, went down to um, Florida, the Bahamas, and the Lesser Antilles. And, of course, that is where he met his end. Yeah. I mean, he got pretty close if he was looking for the Pacific Ocean. I mean, he would have just, you know, hugged that, um, you know, like, Central America. Could have found that little, you know, canal. Yeah. He would have been pretty close. I mean, Panama's, Panama wasn't that throughway until we made it a throughway, but mm. at least he would have been like, this I can see the Pacific Ocean <laughs> yeah. from, at least. I can tell it's there. <laughs> Though I guess, like, without knowledge of that, a bunch of water looks like a bunch of water. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, under the reputations section, yeah, about um, that, he did not proliferate as much as other explorers of that area of that era um, like he would give a name to something and then discover that it was already named he didn't seem to be very good at his job <laughs> he had the bad luck of making di- major discoveries within the same three year period 1519 to 1521 of both the dramatic conquest of Mexico and Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation of the world, which, though Magellan himself did not complete, brought him undying fame. Which is weird how that works. <laughs> Literally, a huge underachiever somehow managed to have an undying legacy and become a legend. <laughs> That wouldn't happen today. Like, today there'd be so much scrutiny on the internet. You'd just yeah. be like, nope, you're not getting credit for this. Sorry. <laughs> in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a great debate, though, in the United States about the authenticity of the letters that he wrote to Francis I describing the geography, flora, fauna, and native population of the East Coast of North America. Others thought it was true, 
and it is almost universally accepted as authentic today, particularly after the discovery of the letter signed by Francis I, which referred to Verrazano's letter. Now, Verrazano's reputation was particularly obscure in New York City, where the 1609 voyage of Henry Hudson came to be regarded as the de facto start of a European exploration of New York, since he sailed for the Dutch, not the French. <laughs> it was only with great effort in the 1950s and 60s that Verrazano's name and reputation as the European discoverer of the harbor was reestablished during an effort to have the newly built Narrows Bridge named after him. Ah, uh, that's where I recognize his name The name! From. <laughs> oh my gosh! There it is! Wow, I, you know, I was... Reading this article, I'm like, man, he really didn't, like, discover anything or do anything. And then Verrazano Narrows Bridge. And suddenly I am aware. Yeah. That's not uh, not a bad thing at all. I I didn't realize that was, like, I feel like that was, like, a TV show or something. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. A little, a little puzzle that I didn't understand that earlier. <laughs> I feel like I've been over that bridge, too. Yeah. I've definitely been over that bridge, because I've been to Queens. That's yeah. where it's at. Huh. Huh. <laughs> I guess I need to do some more exploring. Yeah. And this time not give bridges my own kitschy, you know, personal names. <laughs> like... Bridge I just walked over, bridge, or bridge that's really cold on bridge. Man, there's a lot of bridges. Like once New York started setting that precedent, he also had bridges named for him in the Narragansett Bay. The Jamestown Verrazano Bridge is also named for him, and so is Maryland's Verrazano Bridge. I think we have one more shortish article. Yeah. Find something good to end on here. It is the titular article that we will need to seal the deal on this episode of (laughs) the Wikipedia Chronicles. Don't know what that was. (laughs) Well, let's see. We started out in Clear Creek, Utah. What would be a real cool departure? Navigatory class destroyer. Okay. <laughs> yes. There we go. That's the one. Okay. So, the navigatory class destroyer. It was a group of Italian destroyers, which is a boat, uh, built in 1928 to 1929. These ships were named after Italian explorers. They fought in World War II, and just one vessel, the Nicoloso Dereco, survived the conflict. These ships were built for the Regia Marina as a reply to the large contra-torpilleurs of the Jaguar and Jupard classes built for the French Navy. These ships were significantly larger than other contemporary Italian destroyers, and were initially classed as espioratory or scouts. They were re-rated as destroyers in 1938. And they had a lot of guns <laughs> and a lot of torpedoes on them. 
main armaments were 120mm guns in three twin turrets, which allowed for a 45-degree elevation. And the torpedo launchers consisted of two triple banks, each usually comprising two 533-millimeter, or 21-inch, separated by one 18-inch torpedo. The ships were fast, thanks to their uh, four boilers. Yeah. Uh, they were able to achieve speeds of up to 43.5 knots. Yeah, that's quite a bit. But uh, that was during uh, trial runs. Hmm. And uh, under service conditions, that's not actually achievable by these boats, <laughs> unfortunately. They're fast only in theory, <laughs> which means that in practice, they're <laughs> extremely disappointing. And not only that, but they were also found to lack stability... And oh, no. were rebuilt with a clipper bow, increased beam, and reduced superstructure in the late 1930s. And then during the war, the torpedoes were replaced by triple 21-inch tubes and extra AA guns were added. See, I don't recognize any of the other explorer names on here. Yeah, not too many of the ships. There was a lot of these ships. There's like 12 of them, but... yeah. Giovanni de Verrazzano was the only one that I recognize. Now, yeah. And the Nicoloso was the only one that survived. Well, let's see here. The first... Oh, yeah, I guess... This is Italian, so they would have been on the Axis side of things during World War II. Correct. I wasn't even registering in my brain that <laughs> <laughs> these are quote-unquote, the bad guys. Yeah, one of their ships, the uh, Emmanuel Pesango, was torpedoed and sunk by British submarine HMS Turbulent, which is a much <laughs> cooler name, by the way, take yeah. note of Italy, on the 29th of May, 1942, while escorting a convoy to get this, Benghazi. <laughs> there was another Benghazi scandal. <laughs> I didn't even know Benghazi was that big of a deal. <laughs> Crazy. The um, one of the ships was sunk on mines in the Strait of Bonifacio on September 9th, 1943. Hey, Bonifacio, that's like kind of like that uh, that brewery that we know of. Straight Boniface. Saint, yeah, <laughs> Straight Boniface. Yep. I'm gonna say this one just because it's kind of funny. Uh, the Antonio Usandamer, not the name, the name's not funny. <laughs> Bear with me. Uh, it sank a British submarine P 38 on 25th of February 1942, uh, sunk by submarine Allegai in a friendly fire incident <laughs> on the 8th of June <laughs> while escorting a convoy from Naples to Tripoli. 141 <laughs> killed, 165 survivors. Wow. Another one had a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting fate. Niccolo Zeno was scuttled in Trist on the 9th of September, 1943, to prevent capture by the Germans because the Italians surrendered, <laughs> and they didn't want Germany to come and steal what was left of what they had. <laughs> yeah, it didn't seem to be too great of a bunch of ships here. Nope. <laughs> I feel like this is like. 
kind of a this, bummer. This would really. make like a great World War II comedy, like all these ships just you know being blown up. Yeah, just being, like just sucking being, like goofy, you know, oafs. Yep, just sinking. In like they're in the middle of a ship chase, but then all of a sudden their stability acts up, something breaks <laughs> loose, and they start going in circles and doing donuts in the ocean. <laughs> and then the uh, Americans are just kind of like, "What are you guys doing?" And they can't <laughs> get out of the loop. And then like you know, some dopey like Benny Hill music starts playing, yeah. and the the U.S. submarine just sits there and watches <laughs> while they it's run like out of fuel. They're all piloted by the Three Stooges. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> like each one, the Stooges are on one of them and then it gets sunk and they they're in like the lifeboat and they row to another row one row to the other one <laughs> they get on that one <laughs> they just keep getting in and the ships explode all the way until the end of the war when the Germans end up pursuing them instead the same thing happens and they just take apart the ship in the middle of the ocean and let themselves sit there yeah they don't have a lot else going on with these ships yeah they just kind of were bad else. yeah there's bad ships <laughs> Nothing else to really talk about in this one. Yep. So there you have it. From Clear Creek, Utah to Navigatory Class Destroyer. So if you enjoyed this or not, please visit facebook.com slash TWC podcast and give us a like and follow. Then head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.ericturibio.com. And I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and the Chicago Rhythm Kings for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Oh, I really wish that boat was a little bit better. Like, it sounds cool. It's just yeah. slap destroyer class on there. Just kind of like, oh man, this is going to be great. And it's just like a little boat. Some guns on there. It wasn't even a destroyer. And then they were just kind of like, well, some more guns. That'll help. Can you imagine if the Star Destroyers and Star Wars were this bad? Yeah, but it would be like just flying around in circles. Yep. Accidentally get hit by the Death Star's lasers. Yeah. <laughs> like it wouldn't. I mean, the Tie Fighters almost are that bad. They get like yeah, little, they true. get nicked a little bit, and the Tie Fighters are just like, well, <laughs> guess we're spinning around for a while now. That'll be fun. <laughs> but I don't know why these were so bad. I mean, look at some of the stats. They, they did have 50,000 horsepower <laughs> propulsion systems. That yeah. seems like a lot for a ship this size. Yeah, for only being 107 meters long. <laughs> it's as long as most football fields. Yeah. So that's not, like, huge for a ship. For a ship that's like, eh, could be bigger. Could be bigger. I'm not impressed. Could be bigger. It's supposed to be a destroyer. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, uh... Kind of a letdown, this ship. Yeah. But then the Italians aren't really known for their navy, are they? Yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, it's like the losing side of the war, so. Right. They so you're probably not have inferior equipment. Yeah. I'm sure the, you know, British navy, the American navy, probably had much better destroyers and. And stuff. Oh, the British Navy for sure. I mean, the British Navy, come on. Yeah. British Navy. I mean, what else is there to say? It's been around for 
ever. <laughs> yeah. And it's been great the whole time. Yeah. Although, honestly, the reason that they became great was, uh, well, you know, they had a bunch of small ships, kind of like this one, and that's <laughs> how they were able to defeat the larger ships of the Spanish Armada. But that aside... They did it correctly. They did it right. They did it better. They did it cool. Yeah. Yeah. 